My name is Ed, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new with us, uh, welcome. Actually, welcome to all of you. Um, we're uh, talking about a really interesting section of Scripture today. Uh, a number of years ago, when um, Diane and I were first married, I think this was our second Christmas, so this would have been uh, 1879. We, we were living in the Boston area, and we had just moved into a new home and just started with a new church, and uh, it was a very small church. So we decided we were going to have a really big Christmas party, and uh, if you know my wife, you can imagine, she had the house all christmas up, and we sent really nice, which, you know, this was old school, so printed all these things out by hand. She sent out a really nice invitation card to a bunch of friends from where we used to live and to our entire church that we were currently a part of. Again, it's a very small church. We got all dressed up. We're having a Christmas party, inviting everyone over. And someone that we had invited to uh, the Christmas party who was part of our church had, you know, he realized that he couldn't come and had given his invitation, uh, the card that we had sent to a street person. So uh, everybody gets dressed up, comes over to our house. We're entertaining people one by one. They come into our house. We get a knock at the door. We go to the door, see who the next guest is. We open up. There's a street person at our front door, and uh, we're thinking, you know, what a time to be asking us for, I don't know, food or something. And he, <laughs> he pulls out an invitation card. So come on in. So it's 30 of our closest friends and uh, this street person who comes to our party because he has an invitation. Uh, this section of scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning, from God's perspective, was all about training. Remember that, and education. But from the Israelites' perspective, they were about to build the largest and most elaborate invitation card that has ever been extended. So let's pray before we jump in. Father, thank you so much for being here with us. We welcome you. Jesus, this morning, we, we take a moment and breathe you in. And we breathe out a day's worth, a, a, perhaps a week or longer worth of worry and stress and to-do lists and mistakes and sin, having been sinned against and awkward interchanges. We breathe that out. And we take in this morning what you have for us, cleansing us of all of that. Welcome. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to begin Exodus 25, verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to ask, if you would, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. Exodus 25, verses 1 through 7. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering. For me, from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet, yarn, and fine linen. And these would have been things they would have carried with them from their time leaving uh, Egypt. If you remember, when they left Egypt, they went house to house and said, you know, can you give stuff to us? And the Egyptians did. And they... they carried with them home by home a treasure chest of these kinds of things. 
goat hair, and this would, of course, come from their herds. Uh, ram skins dyed and another type of durable leather, leather, acacia wood, which was a very moldable wood and would have been abundant in this part of the world, especially around Mount Sinai. Olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. Yeah, that's verse 7. You may be seated. I want to make sure that we make note of two important things about this giving campaign that Moses is launching here. First of all, in verse 1, God tells Moses to collect an offering for me. Notice that. This was not an offering for the thing, for the tabernacle. This was an offering for God. And this pattern holds true for us today. We give to God's causes for God. We don't give for Gateway or, or for the cause. We give for God, and, and we give here at Gateway. It, it used to be in our church, as in many churches, we would pass an offering plate at a certain point in the service. We haven't done that since COVID. Now we collect our offering in metal baskets at our back door, or if you go online to our website, mygateway.life, there's a give button at the bottom. And if you go there and give, we're honored. You could give to many things. We thank you. If you go there to give, you are giving for God, not for Gateway. Secondly, this giving was to be voluntary. Did you notice he says, from everyone whose heart prompts them to give? And, and that also established a principle for how we still give today. We give voluntarily to God's causes through the church. Paul, in the New Testament, made the same point in 2 Corinthians to a group of his friends. He said, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. God could, look, God could have provided these materials for the entire project himself. He could have just made uh, cloth and, and gems and, and yarn materialize. Think of what he did with manna. Or he could have sent them to a, a, a neighboring a community and, and had them perform a raid and, and, and as part of the spoils, found all that they needed for this building project. But he wanted his people to experience the blessing of generosity and sacrifice, and he still wants that for us today. Now we're going to read verses 8 and 9. You can stay in your seat for this. If you're the kind of person that underlines things in the Bible, you might want to underline verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, I'll explain why, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. <laughs> Just five words comprise the Hebrew of verse 8. It has been translated in various ways, and I'm not sure that our translation here, we use the NIV. I'm not sure it captures it fully. It has been translated, for example, they will make me a holy place and I will dwell among them, like here. Or, they, they must make me a holy place so that I can dwell among them. Or, if they build me a holy place, I will locate in their midst. And the interesting thing is that most Hebrew scholars agree that there's almost definitely a note of conditionality in the Hebrew of this verse. In other words, God would not dwell with his people unless they properly invited him. If they build it, I will come. 
That's why some of the translations include phrases like, if this happens, then I will, or this must happen so that I can. In fact, one scholar, I want you to see this. One scholar said, this verse is the simplest and perhaps also the strongest statement in Exodus of God's concern to center himself among his people and to have them organize their lives around him. That's saying something. That's what, that's the, that's what the whole book is about. And to say that this verse is perhaps the strongest statement of God's desire to be at the center of his people's lives, that's saying something. In other words, this whole elaborate building exercise that will be detailed in chapters 25 through 30 of the book of Exodus. When you read that sometime and you go, what in the world? All this detail about the ark and the tabernacle and the lampstand for crying out loud. The priestly garments. This is all an elaborate invitation. God is encouraging them, invite me in and make me the center of your life. In other words, this was a really big invitation card for God. All right, so we're going to go through chapters 25 through 30 really quickly. Don't worry. The, the text is all here for you. It is microscopically small, small. I'm not expecting you to see it. But what I want you to see are the, the headings. These are, these are, the NIV added these in. But this is what's happening in chapter 25 through 30. So first you have the passage that we read, offering for the tabernacle. Moses, go tell the people, bring whatever you're prompted to bring in your heart, um, for the building, for this entire exercise. And then he talks about the ark. Uh, we're going to cover this again in a little bit more detail in two weeks when they actually build it. So the interesting thing about Exodus is there are several chapters where God tells him, this is what I want you to build. And then there's another set of chapters where he talks about this is what they built and how. It's kind of the same thing twice. The ark was where they kept the, the Ten Commandments, by the way. It was that really special uh, a box with the with chest, with all uh, overlaid in gold, and the top of it was pure gold. Next section, Thomas. The table. The table would have been the, the, where they had, it was in the holy place, and that would have been where they had the showbread. The, the lampstand also in the holy place. Next uh, slide, Thomas. Then the tabernacle itself. I'm going to lay this out for you in a couple of weeks. I was going to this morning but it got too complicated. Uh, Lee Spears, for those of you who know Lee, Lee actually constructed for me a set of rope that outlines the uh, dimensions of the tabernacle here in this room. Again, we'll do this in a couple of weeks so you can see it. It could fit on our stage. It was 15 feet by 45 feet long. The first third of it, 15 by 15 by 15 high, essentially a cube, was the holy place. And inside the holy place, you had the Ark of the Covenant that had the Ten Commandments in it. Only select priests and only at certain times could even enter the most holy place. It was divided by an elaborate system of really beautiful curtains. And then the back two-thirds of the tabernacle, which was 15 wide by 30 deep, was the holy place. So the most holy place or the holy of holies and the holy place. And the holy place had the table, and uh, the lampstand in it, and the, the incense altar in it. And, and only priests could enter that area. Next slide, Thomas. More about the tabernacle, and then the altar of burnt offering. The altar of burnt offering would have been out in the courtyard. <clears throat> now, the courtyard was 150 feet long 
by 75 feet wide. It would not fit in our gym. Our gym, if you look around, is 90 feet long, 60 feet wide. So this was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, but still not quite as big as you might imagine. It was surrounded by a seven and a half foot tall, seven and a half foot tall linen sheet and 60 posts that were made to exact specifications and were exactly certain dimensions apart from one another. 20 posts along this side, 10 along the back side, 20 posts along this side, 10 along this side. And out in the courtyard would have been the altar of burnt offering where they would have constantly offered sacrifices. And then, uh, of course, the courtyard itself where, where common people could gather. Next slide, Thomas. The oil for the lampstand, collecting oil for the lamp inside the holy place that would have been burning constantly. Next slide, Thomas. The priestly garments. So here's a whole chapter about the people who took care of the courtyard, the, the, the moving of the tabernacle, because it was a portable structure. So wherever they went, they took God's presence with them. Uh, and also the, the offering of the sacrifices and the upkeep of the, 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 the whole elaborate system, the, the, the uh, instruments of worship inside the holy place, and of course the Ark of the Covenant inside the most holy place. First of all, the ephod, and the ephod was like a, a really large bib that was beautifully constructed over the top of a robe, and uh, it would have been worn around the neck, again, like a very giant bib. Next slide, uh, Thomas. And then the breast piece, and the breast piece would have also gone around their neck, laid on top of the ephod, and it had 12 beautiful gemstones in it that represented the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Next slide, Thomas. Then the other priestly garments, I mean, God even gets, seriously, God even prescribes uh, priestly undergarments uh, and, and uh, what that's supposed to look like as well and how it's supposed to be constructed. Is there another slide, Thomas, or is that it? Yes. And the last chapter is the consecration of the priests. So this elaborate ceremony where the entire priesthood is set aside. These are the people that are going to take care of all of this for us, how they're supposed to to do that. Okay, why? <laughs> why? Why did God give all of this detail here? I mean, he outlined undergarments for the priests for crying out loud. And, and such a detailed description about how to construct the tabernacle and the outer court. Why? Well, if you were here last week, you may remember that we spent part of our time leaning into one particular paragraph that we used as a kind of foil for explaining all of chapter 24, which was a, a, a ceremony where they renewed their relationship with God. This was the paragraph that we outlined for, and, and, and went over with one another. Worship always involves rhythm, liturgy, symbols, and often pageantry of some kind. It's, it's in there, Thomas, yeah. Jordan referred to this earlier. The reason this occasion, and this was chapter 24 last week where they were renewing the ceremony, the reason this occasion was marked by liturgy and symbols and pageantry is, is partly because God accommodates himself to us. God makes himself understandable to us. And he does so through these, through these liturgy, through, through these symbols, through pageantry. But God is obviously after more than the pageantry of worship. He's after our hearts. 
It's also important to remember, and this is what I want you to see again today, that the symbols in liturgy, liturgy are not just for the sake of pageantry. They are training mechanisms. So from God's perspective, this was all a training exercise. Well, generally speaking, these detailed instructions and ultimately the building of the tabernacle plus its presence, its ongoing presence in their, in their camp. This was a training exercise. It was for educational purposes. So what were they supposed to learn? And so what I want you to see, if you miss everything else, don't miss this. The, through the detailed description of the tabernacle in the courtyard, God was communicating at least three things about himself and about them. Number one, his own holiness. Number two, the weightiness and the importance of worship. And number three, an expectation of eternity, of heaven itself. Now let me walk through those real quickly, and then we'll wrap up today. First of all, the holiness of God. I want you to think of a typical desert Bedouin tent from this area. You've probably seen one in a painting or you've seen one in movies before. The Israelites would have been very familiar with this kind of structure. Typically, the larger and more elaborate the tent, the more important the person was. Well, anyone could see that this tabernacle structure, this tent, belonged to an extremely important personage. In fact, it might have been unrivaled in anything the Israelites had ever seen in their experience. It was, it was incredibly beautiful. It was very, very elegant and elaborate. It stood apart from all the other tents. It was literally surrounded by a large courtyard. It, it stood above all the other tents. It was 15 feet tall. The walls were 15 feet tall, and many scholars believe it had essential, an essential tent-like structure so that the, the curtains above it, that, that demonstration didn't show it this way, but many believe that the curtains above it were pitched, so it would have been even taller than 15 feet. It was completely unique, completely extraordinary. In other words, it was holy. This is the primary definition of the biblical word holy, to be set apart, to be completely unique, to be other. I've used this illustration many times over the years at Gateway, but, it, but when the Bible says God is holy, 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 what it means is think of everything in the universe, you know, rocks, these chairs, this carpet, the air that we breathe, the, the cars outside, your body, uh, the moon, the, the sun, uh, the star Alpha Centauri out in the distance, the entire universe, and all of that fits in one category, the created universe. And over here, in a category all by himself, is God. That's essentially what the Bible means by the word holy. And the entire tabernacle structure pointed in that direction, wow, that is completely different. That is above and beyond. That is extraordinary and unique. And God is not to be trifled with. We don't fool around with something that, that, that is that extraordinary. Remember these Israelites were ancient Near Easterners. And in, in, in part, that, that meant that they were pre-wired. It was just their instinct to believe in many gods. That was the world they, they cut their teeth in. Tribal gods, regional gods, gods of different aspects of the universe. This was the world they grew up in, but, but this structure, the tabernacle, was designed to communicate to them, hey, 
Yahweh is something different. This is not a tribal God. This is, this is not a regional God. This is the God of the whole universe. There's no one like him. I was talking about that this week in staff, and Jordan brought up a, a fascinating story. I don't know if you know this one, but it's later in the Old Testament, centuries later. Uh, Israel now is a, an established nation, and they have a king. His name's David. And at one point, they lost the Ark of the Covenant, this, this structure that we're talking about being in the uh, most holy place. So David captures it, and he's bringing it back to Jerusalem. This is a time of celebration, a time of victory. And they're, they're carrying the cart back to Jerusalem, David and the army rejoicing. The priests are around the Ark, transporting the Ark, because they spent their life learning how to handle this, this box, this, this holy thing that represents God's holiness. They've spent their life, but they've been trained in, in how remarkable this thing is because it represents God's holiness, how unique, utterly apart this thing is because it represents God's uniqueness and utterly apartness is. And here are the ways that you're supposed to carry it with very, very elaborate instructions. The ark was made with, with four, uh, six, I'm sorry, ringlets along the bottom of it, and then long posts that were kept through those ringlets. They didn't, uh, they didn't remove those posts. They stayed there so that the ark could be carried by these posts and never touched. They're transporting the ark back to Jerusalem. People are celebrating. One of the priests was named Uzzah. He was behind the cart. You can imagine Uzzah just walking along. And all of a sudden, the cart hits a big rock and the ark begins to shake and it starts to fall. And Uzzah reaches out to protect the ark and to keep it on the cart. And he falls over dead. He touches the ark. And King David is like, what? what are you doing, God? Years ago, I heard a great teaching by a, a professor, a seminary professor. Some of you have heard of a guy named R.C. Sproul. Sproul made a remarkable point about this. This was actually the centerpiece of his teaching on the holiness of God. And Sproul made the point, here's the thing. Uzzah had been trained his whole life in how to uh, transport the ark. This wasn't it. You're not supposed to touch the ark. And by the way, Uzzah, the, the, the ground is not unholy. In this whole area, the thing that's unholy is you. You're not supposed to touch the ark because you're the thing that's completely different from God. You're the thing that's stained here. We don't trifle with God. That's what this tabernacle consistently communicated to these people. Second point was the weightiness and the importance of worship. Look, this building project was going to require sacrifice and time and incredible skill and resources. It would be the center of their attention for a considerable time. And after that, the end result, what they built, would occupy the center of their camp for months and years to come. And just by the sheer volume of the time and the energy it occupied, they would have been reminded how important, how weighty worship is. They would have been constantly reminded that worship is at the center of their lives. Next year, in the United States, we will go through an election season. I don't know if any of you are aware of that, but we will be constantly reminded 
of the nature of democracy, we will be reminded how important this election is. I, I want you to touch your nose every time you hear, this is the most important election in the history of the United States. We'll hear it over and over and over and over again, and over again, and over and over and over again, and over and over again through social media, through TV print ads. We'll hear debates. We'll read articles. There will be no escaping the importance, the centrality of this, just by virtue of the amount of, the amount of space it occupies. The tabernacle provided just this kind of reminder and just this kind of advertisement, if you will, for the importance of worship in their lives, the centrality, the weightiness of worship. As an aside, let me just make a couple of comments about worship. Worship is important, first of all, because it's how we relate to God. This is the main part of how we relate to God. Think about this. I relate, you relate to your children by being warm and by being consistent, other things. You offer love, you offer discipline. You relate to your spouse if you're married by being a partner and a friend through tenderness, romance, person-to-person -person communication. Well, we relate to God through worship. Those are the rules of engagement. Worship is important because it's how we relate to God. Let me give you one more. Worship is important because we need worship. We were designed for worship. We are all worshiping something. It's like breathing out and breathing in. We need it. Years ago, I read this really cool, fascinating story. When I first read it, it was actually in progress. And, uh, you know, I can't even remember what resource I was using, how I followed it up. This was before the days of 24 Hour 7 News. But uh, it's a story of a whale that had been caught under a huge ice sheet in the Arctic Circle somewhere. And uh, somehow locals had uh, realized what was going on, and I don't know how this happened, contacted authorities, you know, scientists were flown in because the whale's life was in danger. Whales are mammals. They don't, they don't breathe like fish through gills. They need air. So they need to breathe out and breathe in. That's what... That's what that blowhole is. They're breathing out, and then they breathe in. So what the scientists did is, uh, over top of near where the whale was circling and swimming, they cut a giant hole in the ice sheet. And the whale surfaced and giant <laughs> exhale, and then an inhale, and then they began tapping the ice. And eventually, hundreds of yards away, they cut another hole. And then tap the ice hundreds of yards away. They cut another hole. And then hundreds of yards away, they cut another hole. And slowly they led the whale, hole by hole by hole, out to open water. Worship is breathing out and breathing in. It's you and I exhaling the weak, and the muck, and the mess, and breathing in Jesus. We do it every week here. I have the habit of doing this every day in my life. Breathing out, and breathing in. Finally, through the design, and then the construction, and the ongoing presence of the tabernacle in their lives, they were being trained to live with an expectation of all that is beyond this life. 
more than we can see here, smell, taste, touch. Look, through this tabernacle, they would have been creating a dramatic multi-sensory experience that would have overwhelmed them with mystery. I want you to think of all the incense that would have been burning in two different locations. Think of the, the, you know, the smells of the constant animal sacrificing. Think of the candlelight that was constantly emanating, constantly, 24 hours a day, from the holy place. In fact, at night, this would have been the only light in, in the entire camp for, for miles around, perhaps. Think of the tabernacle itself. Common people couldn't go into the holy place. Once in a while, they could see into the holy place when the curtains were parted, but they never went in. And no one went into the most holy place except select priests and only at certain times. And, and it was all mysterious and wonderful. The modern equivalent of all of this might be one of those big budget movies, you know, that's shown at one of those giant movie screens. Like, have you seen a movie before at the Udvar Hazy Center? Something like that. One of those big budget movies, things exploding everywhere, except the Israelites' experience at the tabernacle would have been a full body experience, including smells and tastes and things to touch, just sensory overload. It was epic. And it was a journey into the mysterious, a constant reminder that there's more than this. I don't know if you're familiar with the New Testament book of Hebrews, but Hebrews has a long section where he talks about some of this. Uh, look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Thomas, bring that up for me if you would. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So um, um, that, just in verse 3, he's locating where we are. He's talking about this process here. Then he says this. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what's in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the, exactly according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. Now, the fact that this tabernacle is a shadow and a copy, that doesn't mean that there's a giant tabernacle in the sky just like this one, only greater and better. It means that everything in this tabernacle was designed to point them to a life that is beyond this life. To remind them that there is, a, there is a greater, deeper, more abundant, perfect life in the fullest sense there. They're being reminded and they're being trained in the life beyond this life. All right, so what? Let's wrap up. What does this mean for us? Uh, Exodus chapters 25 through 30. This is once again, as I said last week, you probably don't have your life verse for many of these chapters. This is not scintillating reading, but it is fascinating. What does it mean? How does it touch down to our Tuesday or our Friday? Well, number one, let's walk through them. We need to be reminded that God is holy. God is not to be trifled with. That's still true today. You know what? i got to be honest. I think, um, I'm, uh, this is, uh, Gateway's obviously a Protestant church. I know m many of you come from a Catholic background. Uh, I, I think uh, you also know that I, uh, I have deep respect for Protestantism. I'm not, I'm not a, I mean, Catholicism. I'm not a Catholic for a number of reasons. But uh, several times a year, I, I actually spend time in a monastery. Uh, I do that partly because I think Catholics might get this better than most Protestants, and especially lowbrow Protestants like us at Gateway. They, they do a better job at creating mystery and 
and awe than we do. I love our building. If you're new or fairly new with us, we've only been in here uh, not even six years now. And it was a joy and a privilege and a sacrifice for us doing this. But I think I love what we ended up with. I think it's beautiful. I think it's warm. And I think it's inviting. Um, I even think this is terrific. And I love our worship team. I love our stage. But you walk in here and you might feel warm and you might feel invited. But chances are you don't feel overwhelmed with the presence of God. Or you don't feel overwhelmed visually. I hope you do spiritually. But you don't feel overwhelmed visually with the presence of God. Uh, that means, you know what? It's incumbent upon us to go the extra mile to create uh, that for ourselves. That's why we sing songs about holiness. That's why we pause at times in silence here on Sunday morning. That's why we work our way through passages like this in the Bible. We need to be reminded God is holy. The sun, the moon, your neighbor, your Volvo, the air that you breathe, the gas that you put in your Volvo, all of it, everything, everything is in one category. And in the other category, all by himself is God. And he is not to be trifled with. Secondly, we need to be reminded that worship is important. It's central. It's like breathing out and breathing in. That's why we gather here each week on Sunday morning. That's what this, the, this discipline means. That's why I've tried to build a daily habit in my life of connecting in worship with God. Thirdly, we need to be reminded of things beyond. We need to be reminded, we need to remind one another that heaven is our home. We need to be reminded that there is more Several people on staff right now and I are memorizing some scripture together. Part of that is an exercise to do this stuff. The verse that we memorized last week was Colossians, the verses was Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Listen to this. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. And Paul makes this elaborate point about how, oh my, since you've invited Jesus into your life, it's, it's like you're dead. The old person is gone. A new person is now, is now occupying the space that once the old person, it's like you're with him. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Finally, let's remember that God didn't need a building with a courtyard in order to live somewhere. <laughs> the whole universe is his. He didn't need this, but God wanted his people to choose him. He wants willful followers. He waits to be invited. So we don't need to rebuild the tabernacle and the priestly garments, but we do need to invite God into our lives. We need to invite God into our lives. Look, if there's anyone this morning who has never done that, I'm not talking about being religious. I'm not talking about going to church services. I'm talking about choosing to invite God into your life. You know, we do that by acknowledging what Jesus Christ has done for us, who he is, 
and acknowledging him as the Lord and Savior of our lives, the, the rescuer. And you can do that right now by acknowledging before him, I don't think I've ever gotten this straight. And I want to invite you in to be the governor of my life, to rule my life. I give it to you. I invite you. If you have done that, once we invite him into our lives, we have to create a rhythm of doing so repeatedly. So I want to encourage you to build ceremony, to build, to build rhythm into your life. Gathering here on Sunday mornings is a part of that rhythm. Being reminded, uh, drawing near to him and inviting him in. Uh, Diane and I, for many years, we used to do this uh, evening compline service, which is, which is one of the daily offices that uh, the monks do at the monastery that I go to. And I got the text for this, and it's just a, a liturgical response, call and response back and forth, and at some point there's a silence period or a time of prayer. And Diane and I would go to bed most nights, and are you the priest or am I? And then one of us would be the priest, and the other one would be the voice, and we would do the compline back and forth to one another. And each night we would pause for a time of silence or a time of prayer, and then the priest went in by saying, Oh Lord, guide us waking, guard us sleeping, that awake we may watch with Christ, and asleep we may rest in peace. Good night. Rhythm, liturgy, symbol, pageantry, designed to educate, designed to point, designed to remind. This world is not our home. God is holy. He's, he's, he's remarkable. Worship is incredibly important. At the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 3, uh, the author John pictures Jesus speaking to one of the churches that he's writing this letter to. And Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they will come in to me. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Let's recognize this morning that a part of what this means is that Jesus is standing at the door of your heart this morning. Now, some of you invited him in a long time ago, and today is another time for you to welcome him because you've had a long week, and you need to breathe that out and breathe him in. So we're going to take a moment for you to welcome him. Uh, someone here may have never invited him into your life, and this morning you have sensed something on your heart and your mind. I want to encourage you to do that now. I want to encourage you to invite him in Jesus. Help me to, help me to grow in you. I, I want to give my life to you. I've, I've, I've made something of a mess of things. I want to turn that over, and I ask you to forgive me and I invite you to be the governor of my life this morning. Uh, would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, oh Lord Jesus, we welcome you as the sovereign king and uh, governor, Lord, reign over our lives. We take a moment and blow out our week. 
we breathe it out to you. Think of the relationship issues that we've had. The awkwardness or the, the conflict that has been surfaced this week. Moments of greed, moments of envy, moments of lust. We exhale. I think of the worries and the concerns that we've carried this week or the relationship that we don't have or our children or our parents. It has been a burden We've tried to carry it, and we were not made for that. Lord, I think of the joy that we've experienced and the pleasure that we've experienced in, in inappropriate things. I think of the grief, Father, all the grief. We exhale. Jesus, we breathe you in. Life, comfort, peace, direction, purpose, and vision. We breathe that in. <laughs> 